You're about to hear my conversation with Todd Mantino. We talk all about the Canadian election, what it means to markets, and what the next government has to grapple with going forward. I hope you enjoy. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Information relating to investment approaches or individual investments should not be construed as advice or endorsement. Listeners should seek professional advice for their situation. Welcome to the McKenzie Investments Podcast. My name is Matthew Schnur, and I'm delighted to be here with Todd Matina. Todd is our chief economist, and we're here to talk about the Canadian election. Todd, welcome. Thanks so much. Always a pleasure to join you, Matt. Why don't we get started with a, a brief summary of, of what happened uh, last night, uh, what you're seeing, and if there's any market reaction that you've noticed. Yeah, great. Thanks. Um, so at this stage of the game, it looks like the Liberals have secured enough votes to basically reform another minority government, another Liberal-led minority government. Uh, in fact, if you look at the changes compared to the last parliament, uh, in most cases, there's been very little change in seat count uh, for the leading parties. Um, so I, at the end of this campaign, we look very much like where we started uh, just a few months back uh, with, the, with, again, the Liberals looking to form a minority government. Um, I, I guess the, the cynical view is that this was a an expensive campaign that really didn't lead to any clear winners relative to the, to the last parliament. And sure. uh, if anything, had a few more, has contributed to more divisions. But I think um, it was important because there were still a number of issues that were, were discussed in this campaign. I have to say, though, I would have, it would have been nice to see a, a fuller discussion of some of the more longer term challenges facing, uh, f- facing the policy world. And uh, I, hope, I hope that we will start to confront some of those issues Great. Uh, before we dive into the, the longer term challenges, Todd, let's circle back to um, what we can expect for policy out of the, the new minority liberal government. Um, you know, do you expect any difference at all? I mean, that the, doesn't seem like he was given a stronger mandate or anything along those lines, or do you think it's going to be status quo? Uh, and then are you seeing anything in markets or uh, either equity or debt markets? Yeah, thanks, Matt. So, you know, it's interesting, starting with the market reaction, we really haven't seen at this, it's, it's still early, early in the morning after after the election. But at this stage of the game, we're not seeing uh, significant market moves out of this election. And, you know, that's really in line with history. If you look at, you know, historical federal elections in Canada, big market moves are really the exception rather than the rule. Um, and I think there's really a number of reasons why um, we're not. Ex- I wouldn't expect to see a lot of uh, market change or market movement uh, because of the election outcome. The first is, um, you know, I guess you, 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 if you think about it, the the outcome of this election where we stand today really looks like it was in line with expectations going into election night. So we got the government and the outcome, a liberal-led minority, most likely. Which, which markets were already discounting. So there really wasn't a lot for asset prices to jump on. Uh, there was really no news. Another big impact is that if you, if you look at market movements this morning, the Canadian dollar is a bit stronger, yields, Canadian benchmark 10-year yields are, are, are slightly higher. Really, that's in line with global market movements. So it looks like Canada really, the markets in Canada are really being driven more by 
um, global movements and in interest rates, the bounce back from yesterday's sell-off in stock markets. Um, really, it's it's the global issues that are are driving markets in Canada, which is really in line. We're a small economy, very dependent on the global business cycle, global trade, and, and global uh, commodity prices driving the, the Canadian dollar. So we still see that carrying forward today, rather than any big issues that came out of the campaign. And really, that's the the, the other big reason why I think why we're not seeing big market movements is there really wasn't substantive major policy change being discussed in the campaign. We saw, um, you know, discussions, the Conservatives focused a lot on the reasons for the election. The Liberal Party focused a great deal on, on the pandemic and their response to it. There really wasn't um, what I would call big macro regime changes in, for example, the, the, uh, the future path of the budget deficit or the debt or other changes, major changes in taxes compared to the last parliament. So there really wasn't a lot to drive major market movements. Um, I think, you know, going to your earlier question, I think it's the fact that we didn't have those big substantive discussions about major policy challenges going forward in the campaign. I think the next government, um, uh, the, the, most likely the Liberal government, is going to need to pivot uh, pretty quickly to dealing with some of these challenges, these more like five, 10 year challenges, um, you know, following this campaign. Well, let's dig into those uh, those longer term challenges and leave uh, behind the election and and really let's look forward to what the Liberal government has to focus on. Um, I know uh, certainly of concern everywhere is is COVID. Uh, everybody's been focused on COVID. Uh, one of the lasting impacts of COVID or, or one of the things that was novel about COVID was certainly the fiscal monetary response. Um, what are some of those longer term challenges? I'm sure those are, are two of them, but why don't you uh, opine on, on what you're looking for and how the governments can think about handling them? Yeah, thanks. Um, you know, you're absolutely right. I mean, if you look backwards for the last couple of years, uh, you know, fiscal policy, Bank of Canada, monetary policy has been appropriately uh, entirely focused on the emergency response to the pandemic, providing emergency support, income relief. To make sure that you know the, the trough of this deep recession, the most abrupt recession we've had uh, in modern times, uh, wasn't even worse. And I think the the huge expansion in the budget deficit, increase in debt, and on the central bank side, uh, cutting interest rates to about zero with with um, quantitative easing, all of these policies were absolutely essential. Uh, to make sure that the recession wasn't even deeper and more severe than than it could have been. Uh, because of these multiple lockdowns. Now, you know, knock on wood, it, it appears that as we get through the Delta wave, uh, there could be future waves, who knows, but we appear to be through the worst of, of the economic impacts of, of this pandemic. And the challenge now is going to be shifting from this emergency set of policies that have been put in place over the last year and a half to a gradual withdrawal of these emergency policies to something that looks a bit more quote unquote normal. So a gradual withdrawal of this enormous fiscal policy support. Uh, and similarly for the Bank of Canada, a gradual withdrawal of its extraordinary monetary policy support. So I think this is gonna be the number one uh, issue for the next government is to balance, it's a really fine balance to gradually withdraw enormous fiscal support but not doing it too quickly to sort of 
move too much into fiscal austerity, which could disrupt what's still, um, you know, early stages of an economic expansion out of this, uh, you know, which could affect uh, employment and, and uh, we still have quite a few jobs to create. So I would say that that walking that fine line is really the most pressing issue over the next year or two. I would say looking even beyond the next year or two, um, you know, these were issues you know, pre-pandemic, there was a number of challenges facing the federal government and federal policymakers that I think were, were appropriately put on hold. But we, as we work our way through this pandemic, those policies are going to come back to the forefront. And I think this government will need to start thinking about those. And it doesn't get talked a lot about, and it certainly didn't um, you know, get discussed in the campaign. But the, I would say the number one policy issue for, for our, the federal government is to raise long-term growth, uh, primarily through boosting productivity. No one talks about that. You rarely hear that, but it's so important. And I, and I would argue there's three really important transitions coming up why it's so important to boost productivity. The first transition is the demographic transition. The second, I would call the green energy transition or the climate transition. And the third is the debt transition. And I think all of these transitions which are, are which are facing us are going to require higher productivity to help us pay or work our way through these transitions. Great. Um, why don't we go into those transitions a little bit more detail? Um, so I, I think uh, demographic, uh, climate, debt, um, why don't we cover them in that order if, if you don't sure. mind, Todd? Sure. Uh, what, what can what can the government do on uh, on these um, three large issues that it faces? Yeah, each one is a major policy challenge, and, and Canada's certainly not alone in facing it, but every country needs to start working on the policies to deal with these transitions. I'll start with the demographic transition. Now, this is well known, it's been well um, researched and described for many years. As the population continues to age, the government's going to face steady, I would call them age-related fiscal pressures. So healthcare costs, pension costs, and other expenditure pressures that are gonna put pressure on the budget deficit and debt. Um, at the same time, as the population ages, more people retire, growth in the labor force will slow. And just mechanically, just um, mechanically, that will slow down average growth rates in the economy. So you have a slowing average growth rate over time, um, just as we have increasing fiscal pressures to deal with uh, an aging population. And if you think about it, we've come out of this pandemic, the government has dramatically increased the debt uh, appropriately again in order to pay for the pandemic. But we are now entering this, um, aid, this demographic transition in a weaker fiscal state. And the government in Canada, like, like many other developed market economies, really needs to work on, I would call it a growth-friendly fiscal adjustment to get that debt back down. And this is, we'll talk more about this when we talk about the debt transition, but getting ready for the this demographic transition, these age-related spending pressures, and also, which people forget, the average lower growth that comes out of population aging. This is why raising productivity is so important. We need higher productivity growth rates to offset the drag from population aging. Right. The other big transition, um, the second big transition is the, I would call it uh, broadly the green energy transition. This is a priority obviously worldwide. Um, it's something that many people have talked about. This is something that's gonna require large investments um, by the public sector as well as the private sector. And 
you know, funding these large investments, you know, green transition requires different infrastructure. Um, it could require uh, very large investments by the federal government. Again, um, you know, putting our fiscal house in order ahead of these large investments that are coming is very important in order to make sure we have the fiscal space to deal with these, you know, very important secular transitions. It's also important to, going back to the productivity theme. During the transition, the average cost of energy could rise. Um, you know, we, we're moving to a place where greener energy could actually reduce the average cost of energy, but in the transition, it could rise as we make these investments. And again, we need all, all hands on deck to boost productivity, not just to pay for the demographic transition, but to help offset the cost of the green transition. And then finally, the, the last transition is, is that I'm loosely calling it the debt transition, which you know, Canada going into the pandemic was had one of the strongest net debt positions at the federal level amongst the G7, G10 economies. Uh, it was really a model um, seen internationally. International organizations like the IMF and others would point to Canada and the work it did for two decades, really, um, building the, what I'm calling fiscal space, basically a low debt uh, fairly low budget deficits, which gave it the room to deal with crises. And that really paid dividends when the pandemic hit unexpectedly. We've used that fiscal space appropriately, uh, helped to pay for the pandemic to smooth the costs, uh, you know, deal with joblessness, to support businesses. But now we're in a weakened position again. Uh, debt is higher, and we have a number of other expensive transitions like the demographic and green transitions. So. The challenge for the next government is going to put in place a framework, a growth-friendly framework that it can credibly reduce deficits and debt over the next five years to rebuild that fiscal space ahead of all these transitions and not to mention unexpected economic crises that tend to pop up from time to time. Sounds like uh, quite a challenge, to be honest, Todd. I mean, on one side, you have this, uh, these large issues that I think everybody would agree are really need to follow the government. I mean, climate change and uh, the demographics, there's not a lot that uh, private citizens, businesses, not nothing, but certainly it's a, it seems like more of a government challenge. Uh, but we're also saddled with this uh, large amount of debt. So first, maybe I, I can ask you, like, what do you, what would you suggest as far as, far as policy goes or, or things to at least think about uh, as the, the new government uh, goes to, to govern. And then second, I want to circle back to boosting productivity because that seems like it's a, a critical uh, component. And I'd love your ideas on what uh, the federal government could do to help out on that. Yeah, sure. So um, I, you know, as it happens, you know, earlier in my career, I spent a lot of time at the International Monetary Fund. And you know, thinking about these kinds of fiscal issues was a, was a big part of what we did. Uh, certainly for me, that's a big part of what I used to do. And, and I can tell you in terms of best practices internationally, one, one thing I would love to see the next government do is put together, uh, I keep calling it a growth-friendly fiscal adjustment, some plan, um, a five-year framework that laid out exactly how the government would adjust taxes, different spending items to reduce the deficit, reduce debt to sustainable levels. And that has many benefits. By spelling out how line by line, we're going to adjust spending and taxes to get to a better place to get our fiscal house in order. It gives uh, reassurance to investors uh, who are investing in that debt. So it helps to keep sovereign risk premiums lower. It provides transparency. 
in terms of how the government intends to achieve its targets. Um, and I think that's very important, uh, you know, even from a, a governance and transparency point of view, is to lay that framework out to make it credible. Um, I would also say uh, there's a growing, growing thought about having a fiscal rule or at least some kind of medium term target to say, look, this is the debt level that we're striving for, you know, to go beyond, well, you know, the debt level as a share of the economy is falling over time and that's good enough. Rather than going the extra step and say, you know, the debt is currently around 50% of GDP. Let's get it back down to 25 to 30% of GDP over time, gradually, no fiscal austerity necessarily in the short term. And that's another huge benefit of laying out a five-year plan is to say, look, we're not going to take away the punch bowl too quickly and risk a, a, an abrupt slowdown in the economy. We can backload it to future years. And here's exactly our plan on how to do it. And that's a way to reassure taxpayers, investors, and other stakeholders that it's a credible plan. So backing that up with some kind of fiscal rule or target is a, another way to even further boost that credibility. Um, so that's the kind of thing that I, I would call best practice uh, internationally that I would love to see. And I'll, I would love to see the next government pursue that. But I feel... Uh, um, that that is not the, like that, that were none of those issues were really actively discussed in the campaign in terms of how to get the deficit down. In fact, it was quite the opposite. It was more about, you know, we still have deficits projected uh, out five years. Um, there's more of an active government. Uh, in uh, I think that most of the parties were on board with more active fiscal spending by the government. So I think some of these longer term transitions are not the current priority. So I, I, I'm not, I'm not holding my breath that we're going to see this, but I would love to see the next government uh, do more in this in this way. That's great, Todd. And, and I think, you know, you've outlined something that we all intuitively know, which is spending is fun and not spending <laughs> is less fun. Um, so, uh, you know, what would you look for for warning signs, I guess, or, or where could we actually get into uh, problematic behavior uh, if if we see government uh, debt go too too high, are you looking for you know uh, troubles with bond auctions or inflation or, or what are the sort of worrying signs that you would see in the overall economy that would say okay we're we're in uh, we've gone too far? So you know for me and and uh, maybe I'm showing my age, but I remember very well the mid '90s uh, fiscal crisis, if we can call it that, in Canada when. Um, debt was on an unsustainable path. Deficits were high and they were structural. It was very difficult to reduce them. And debt service costs were eating up a huge share of total revenues in the economy uh, of, of federal government revenues, uh, north of 30%. And it led to a very painful period of fiscal adjustment in Canada, uh, lasting many years to get deficits back under control. Uh, and that was painful for many people. I, I, I don't think we're on that path right now. But the key ingredient to, to debt sustainability today is that uh, interest rates remain low for a prolonged period. And while there's many reasons to think that interest rates will stay low for a long time, we're really uh, we're really we're really um, loaded onto that bet. As are many other major economies. If interest rates were to start rising very rapidly for some reason, let's say inflation is less transitory than people expect, and that chases up interest rates. Uh, let's say uh, people start to worry about the sustainability of government finances over the long term when they look at these, you know, a string of deficits and high debt. 
in Canada and other countries like the United States, which is in an even worse position. Uh, and that chases up interest rates after inflation. All of these factors uh, can suddenly change debt dynamics very quickly, and then suddenly you have an issue. So as long as interest rates stay low uh, for a prolonged period and we have healthy growth rates in the overall economy, the debt is going to gradually fall over a very long, slow period of time. And that's what governments are counting on. But they, they're taking a lot of interest rate risk. And the prudent thing to do is to get the debt down while conditions are good. Right now, interest rates are low. We're in a, a rebounding economy. So the time to get a more sustainable long-term fiscal framework is now uh, and not wait for that market pressure that one day could suddenly come abruptly if, if interest rates should ever rise. So that'll be what I'd be looking for. Uh, it's really not looking for. It's really... Uh, I'd, I think the responsible, the prudent thing to do is to take action early before we end up in this situation, because once it happens, it's it's really too late. That's great. Uh, and then I just wanted to circle back. We never did address the productivity question uh, head on. Um, what 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 can the government do to help productivity? Yeah, it's important. You know, productivity is one of those um, one of those phenomena in economics that. It, Everyone knows it's the, what probably the most important thing. It is the most important thing for living standards over the long term. But what drives sure. productivity is still a bit of a mystery. You know, it's funny if you think about all of the incredible technology uh, that the world has been blessed with since the, even since the mid 1970s. If you think about the internet and uh, telecommunications, cell phones, all of these incredible technologies. It doesn't show up in productivity. If you look at productivity, it's actually been falling almost every decade since the 1950s or even earlier. It's really extraordinary. So we're not seeing these innovations translating into more output per person. And that's what drives living standards higher. That's what drives income per person higher. So that's why it's such a critical challenge, not just for those transitions I mentioned, but also just for living standards. What can the government do? Well, there's there's certain things... I think that you can that are in a toolbox, and the first is, you know, do no harm. Uh, so you review policies and look at the distortions they cause, which can reduce GDP. And there's, you know, you can start with the tax system. We have a tax system that can be very distortionary. Um, so the standard advice is always to broaden the tax base and cut those ex- uh, tax exemptions, especially those that are not well targeted, the ones that favor. Uh, people who really don't need it. Same with spending. Spending is often, there's often room to target social benefits and other spending much better to get it to the people who are most vulnerable and and and, and make sure that the, the public spending, public spending, you can trim the level of spending or, or slow its growth by making sure that you focus the benefits on the most needy. Uh, so those are the kinds of uh, things you can do from a policy perspective. I would say that another really important thing to do is um, you can call them micro reforms, microeconomic reforms, but really it's like, look, basically that's another way of saying, you know, let the private sector unleash growth. So deregulation you know, in different uh, in different sectors of the economy, cutting red tape. Uh, th- these are cliches, but they are really important. It's like easing the cost of doing business, uh, both entry and exit of new businesses, um, redu- uh, allowing them to operate more efficiently, these are so critical. Um, cutting inefficient subsidies. Uh, these, all these things re, um, create distortions. I'll say another one, which um, is getting more and more attention these days, particularly with housing affordability being such an issue. 
Um, many, many of the leading parties focused on the demand side of housing affordability, trying to give more tax breaks or more incentives to try to make it easier to afford what is really a, a very expensive housing market. And unfortunately, you know, for, as an economist, I look at those policies and say, that's likely just going to make housing even less affordable by chasing up prices. The solution is unfortunately harder to do, and it's really not a federal government area, but it's on the supply side. We need to increase housing supply. And one of the unintended benefits of that, not only does it help make housing more affordable for more people by increasing the supply, but it also, um, there's been a lot of work showing that in very hot markets, you know, urban markets where there's a lot of dyna dynamic growth happening, um, the biggest winners are landowners. Like the, the all the uh, excess returns and profits from this dynamic growth that might be happening in a city goes into land prices because people are bidding up land prices to work there. And that can actually suck away some of the economic resources that would have been boosting, even further boosting a, a dynamic growth area. And this is maybe most obviously seen, you can look in the US and in Silicon Valley is a great example. If you look at San Francisco and San Jose and places like that, uh, but even New York City and other high productivity areas. And I think some, I haven't seen research on it, but I think similar things are happening here in Canada. If you were to look at Toronto and other hot markets uh, in Canada, um, the, you know, the, the huge increase in, in housing prices over the last decade um, has made it difficult for workers uh, outside of Toronto to move here and take advantage of, um, you know, a booming local economy. So, you know, housing supply can actually not only make housing more affordable for people, but also help boost GDP. Todd, that's excellent. Maybe we'll uh, we'll end on that note. Uh, thank you so much for spending the time to walk through uh, both the anemic, it seems like, reaction to the, the new uh, government, as well as maybe some of the stuff that uh, government will have to turn their attention to, will be forced to turn their attention to uh, in the coming years and decades. So, Todd, thank you. Very insightful. Thanks so much. Real pleasure. content of this podcast, including facts, views, opinions, and recommendations, is not to be used or construed as investment advice and is not an offer or an invitation to buy or sell any security. The content of this podcast should not be relied upon for any purposes and McKenzie Financial Corporation is not responsible for any reliance upon it. This podcast includes forward-looking information that reflects our current expectations or forecasts of future events. Forward-looking information is subject to risks, uncertainties, and assumptions that could cause actual results to differ materially from those expressed herein. Our views are subject to change based on market conditions. Commissions, trailing commissions, management fees, and expenses may be associated with mutual fund investments. Please read the fund facts and prospectus before investing. The indicated rates of returns are historical annual compounded total returns, including changes to unit values and reinvestment of all dividends or distributions and does not take into account sales, redemptions, distribution, or optional charges or income taxes payable by any security holder that would have reduced returns. 